Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Backrow YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by James Lavish, who is the, a managing partner at uh, the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund and the author of the Informationist newsletter. James, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, happy to talk to you. Yeah, me as well. Me as well. Uh, we've got a lot to cover here, so maybe let's just dive right in. Um, I, I'd love to start. I, I think what I'd love to do is sort of tease out your view on the macro side of things, and then we can kind of work our way down the funnel into Bitcoin, your thoughts on where we are in the cycle and some of the work that you're doing at the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. But, you know, if I had to just ask you kind of from a, a 20,000 foot vantage point, when you're looking out at the the macro landscape today, there's been quite a bit of focus on the, the treasury and supply dynamics going on in the bond market. People are zeroing back in on, on stocks and people are asking this question about, is there going to be a recession, hard landing, soft landing, no landing? Um, James, if you had to kind of look out there into this wide world of macro, how would you kind of parse out what are the, the driving factors right now? Well, I mean, there's a lot of confusion about what's what's going on in the economy, and and uh, funny enough, people are there's the the information we get from the Fed and the uh, the Bureau of Labor Services. It, it's a little bit obfuscated, right? So when you get CPI, they break out certain uh, components that are kind of critical to to the everyday person. You know, things like housing and energy and food costs. And they call it, you know, a core uh, inflation indicator. And so they give you numbers that may not match up with reality. And so uh, that's one thing. You've got consumers have, have had a lot of cash on hand. And part of that is because of the stimulus checks and the, uh, and the programs that the, the Fed ran during the pandemic, uh, you know, just handing out money to a, to a lot of small companies and people. And so, but that's running out. And so now you see credit, the consumer credit is at all time highs. Uh, and now you're starting to see actually, Mike, you're starting to see that delinquencies are up and, uh, and that the younger generations under pressure. But I was reading this morning on Bloomberg that the, the, the interest payments are, are now they've surged. I mean, they, they've, it's almost like a straight it's like a cliff face from just the last few months or beginning of this year that personal interest payments as a percentage of income are now up around where they were just before the uh, great financial crisis recession. So, and you can see it spike every single time before a recession and now it's spiked right, right now. And though we haven't seen quote unquote, a recession yet full on recession, uh, you know, I, I fully believe it's coming. And, and there, if you look back, uh, in, in time and you look back at things like the yield curve and inversions and, um, and job losses, one of the things that, that the Fed likes to point to is, well, job losses are, you know, they're, the, the job market is still strong. And, uh, and, and jobless rate is still at, at historic lows or near historic lows. But the reality is they're rising. And the other reality is jobless, jobless rates don't spike until after a recession starts. So you'll see it start to tick up 
And then every single time that we have a recession, that's when the jobless rate spikes. So it's not a great indicator. It's a great way to look back and see what happened, but it's not a great leading indicator. It's lagging, severely lagging. And so that's one of the problems that we have is now you look at the market. And we've got these, we've got seven stocks, the magnificent seven that have been driving, uh, the, the stock market, the S&P 500 for months now. And ever since the, uh, the AI hype, and there is some reality around this. NVIDIA is selling a lot of, uh, of chips because of the need for a certain type of, of, uh, processor for the, these, uh, processes of, of AI. And, uh, and you've got these, these companies that, have been soaring and they've been carrying the S&P. If you look at the, if you, if you break out those seven stocks from the S&P, you know, they're the ones that have the highly, highly skewed, um, uh, PAP ratios. So there is some, there's some, there are forces that are acting against each other. The Fed printed a massive amount of money during the downturn of, and the, the pandemic. And, uh, and I think that with them raising rates at a skyrocketing pace and with it, both consumers and small businesses now starting to feel a crunch, we're starting to see a loan delinquencies, not just on the consumer side, but also on the, on the, uh, the corporate side. And, and you're starting to feel that crunch, which is the, the skyrocketing of those rates and the tightening of the money supply. Is, is starting to, uh, impact companies and small businesses and, 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 uh, individuals. And so I believe from a, a very high level, we're heading into a recession. And just the question is, is how hard are we going to land? How deep is it going to go? How long is it going to last? All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at BlockWorks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, BlockWorks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, etc., and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS. London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code MARGIN20. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. Come Okay, so I, I want to do, uh, there's a, a bunch to dig into there. So w- one of the questions that I've had for you about this recession um, is, you know, if we rewind the clock back to beginning of this year, the, you know, the economists that were surveyed by Bloomberg, it was like 99% of them were very confident there was going to be a recession this year. Um, so what did we get so wrong about that, right? What, how can we be confident now that there's a recession in Q1 or Q2 of this coming year? Um, or, or what did we miss this year when we were so 
certain about it. And then I want to return to the point that you made about the the Magnificent Seven and, and AI. We just underestimate how much extra cash there was in the system. Uh, the housing market is is it's perplexing to say the least because housing prices have have stayed very high, and because of that, those are those are assets. That's that's the largest asset on most individuals' balance sheet, right? They're they're the equity in their house, and so housing prices have stayed high. Why? Because they're the the they're not moving. Houses are not selling. Why? Because who wants to sell their house, even if it is has greatly appreciated in price? Who wants to sell their house and uh, give up their two and a half, three and a half percent interest rate on that house in order to go buy another house, which would likely be smaller for the same price at a uh, at an interest rate that is eight percent? So. It doesn't make any sense. So, so people have been holding onto their houses. They haven't, the inventory is not moving. And so that's one of the things that a lot of people kind of, I wouldn't say they missed, but they kind of overlooked. And so that's, that's one thing. And so asset prices are, are, they're still high in, in that area. Um, and just the sheer amount of, of capital that's in the system was also overstated. Another thing is, look, we've been running massive deficits. The, the, the country is running deficits and that's inflationary and, and it stimulates the economy because you're, you're basically borrowing from the future, right? So when you look at debt, and this is one thing that we talk about a lot on, on different podcasts, debt in and of itself is not a bad thing, Mike, you know, so it's just all it's doing is it's, it's pulling future productivity into the present. If you can use it responsibly. If you can use that debt responsibly and borrow an amount that makes sense for you as an individual or your company, then that's, then that's no harm, no foul. However, uh, the, the government isn't doing that. And so we're running these massive deficits. We got into a, a, a position earlier this year at, at the end of May and beginning of June where we were about to trip the debt ceiling. So instead of figuring out how to lower expenses, we just kicked the can down the road on the debt ceiling, put a moratorium on it. Now we don't really have one. Uh, and so in between the time that we, that we kicked that can down the road and today we've added over two, $2 trillion of debt in just a few months. And so the government spending has been, has been massive. Now that's going to come home to roost because at some point, we do hit a recession. The, uh, the economy does grind. It, it does dr- grind slower. That, that ease of capital is tightening quickly. Uh, that, and so you're going to see interest rates will come down in the short term. In my opinion, the long, on the long end of the curve, they'll come down and, uh, and all, all interest rates will come down. You'll see the, the entire curve come down. But as, Longer term, what you'll see, and an indication of that was the bond market, uh, the bond auction we had a few weeks ago, the 30-year auction, which was absolutely abysmal. That was kind of a, a preview to the problem that the Treasury is facing, which is we are borrowing so much that the likelihood that we're going to have a tsunami of debt in the near future is rising every single day. Every single day that we run the deficits that we're running, which is now 
at an annual run rate of over $2 trillion, that gets worse and worse. And the likelihood of that gets higher and higher. So there's a lot of forces here, Mike, that are working against each other. And it's a, it's an extraordinarily difficult market to be an investor in at this moment. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you because I think I'm, I'm in the camp that I agree with you on the, on this, the debt issue. And, but one of the, one of the, the challenges where that has been that the U.S., if, if you want to define what's been going on with our current fiscal situation and taking on deficits that we can't sustain is kicking the can. I think what has surprised everyone is just how long we've been able to kick this can. Been referenced many times on this program, but you can go back. I've got it on my bookshelf here, you know, Market Wizards, which was written in, I believe, 88 or 89. And you could superimpose a lot of the conversations, the exact conversation that you and I are having today, what people were talking about back then. You know, we were just starting to run deficits in the billions of dollars and People were saying 40 years ago that this was going to be the end. And yeah, we were going to go into this, this wage debt spiral that we we're talking about today. And, and it didn't happen. And one of the challenges, I think, is people sort of talk past each other in terms of time frame on the debt issue. But that is, that is the, the devil is in the details there because it's just so difficult to nail down when this becomes a problem. Because I think if you had told even the numbers that we talk about today in a very casual sort of way, oh, a trillion here, you know, a trillion running a two trillion dollar per year deficit, you told that to someone even ten years ago, you'd say the U.S. must be in a state of crisis. You know, I mean, there'd have to be a war going on or something. But clearly, that's not the case. So it's just really difficult to pin down that timing. You know? Yeah. Well. Okay. So, and that's true. And people pointed to Japan and say, "Look, we could do, be just like Japan, run three hundred and fifty percent or two hundred fifty plus percent debt to GDP." You know, our our central bank can buy most of our debt. And like, look, Japan owns most of their own debt. I mean, the bank the Bank of Japan owns more debt, more Japanese debt than any anybody else in the world, and it's just astounding. But they own over fifty percent of it. So, but we're a different economy. And we have a different, we're net, we're net, uh, importers and they're net exporters. You know, we have a different aging demographic than they do. Uh, and we have just different, a different financial system than they do. And so, but the issue here is, and one of the things that gets overlooked is that, or just, it's just something that we, that we sometimes take for granted is that the U.S. Treasury, and the U.S. dollar are the global asset, global reserve asset and the global reserve currency, which gives us a very long runway on this debt issue. Now, that doesn't mean that it solves it, but it does give the Fed and the Treasury a whole lot of rope to keep playing this game. So the Treasury knows it. The Treasury already put out, they put out a report earlier this year in February. And the report is, it's a report on the treasury. It's basically the state of the treasury and how are we doing? Now let, let's back up a bit. First of all, the treasury isn't deciding the spending. The treasury is just enabling the government to spend. They're, they're facilitating it. They have to figure out a way to facilitate all the spending and operate in that budget. And the way they've been doing it is issuing debt. And so they put out this report back in February that basically said it was, it was the state of the state of the treasury. And then the subtitle was an unsustainable fiscal path. And they showed this. And I, and I believe they've taken it down recently, but they showed this chart, which 
which just demonstrated how quickly debt to GDP was rising. And they were basically telling the government, it was a, it was a red flag for the government to say, we can't keep doing this. At some point, this breaks. At some point, we do enter some sort of hyperinflation because of a loss of confidence in our currency. Now, again, what's happening and how we're doing this and, and as, as these rates do end up rising and we get what you, what you call rate premium is you're going to see other currencies struggle and collapse. They'll collapse right into the U.S. dollar. You know, uh, Argentina almost did it. And so th- this is, this is natural and unfortunate and it causes a lot of pain around the world. But because the dollar is so strong and everybody uses and trusts and needs them because of dollar denominated debt, because dollar denominated uh, transactions, um, th- this is, this has put us in the position of being able to, to do this for a very long time. And you, you look back, Mike, and, and when did this start? It started in 1971 when, when Nixon officially took us off the gold standard. And, uh, and we came up with an agreement with Saudi Arabia that they would transact in U.S. dollars for their oil. And so that's been going on ever since. And that's, that's given us a lot of rope on, because it, it makes other countries who are energy dependent have to hold U.S. treasuries in order to have access to dollars at all times to buy that energy. So they sell the treasuries, they get the dollars, they buy. And so, but the world is waking up and you're hearing, you're hearing frustration from countries like Brazil and Saudi Arabia and India, you know, the BRICS, um, Russia, and they're, they're, they don't want to be beholden to the U.S. dollar anymore. Why? Because they know that we're running these huge deficits and we have no choice but to have long-term perpetual structural inflation and inflation that we don't admit to. And that's the biggest problem. And the, you know, we're starting to feel it across the, the economy and individuals are starting to feel it. You see, I, I there every single day there, there are, thousands and thousands of videos of people on on social media saying i don't understand how people are making it everything costs so much who has a job that that pays them enough to spend money like this and to buy food that costs as much to buy houses or cars that cost as much and and so it's becoming a problem internally and that's kind of a big red red flag for us so you're you're a lot younger than me you don't remember this, but back in the 1980s, we had, we had a similar problem of inflation and it was painful. It was severely painful. Now, back then though, because we were running 30% debt to GDP, Volcker was able to raise interest rates up to 20%. Can you imagine if we did that now? Our debt and our- It's even an option. Right. It's not an option because where our interest payments would balloon to the, to become the largest. They would, they would engulf, they would require all of tax payments if we did that. And that's just so we're already at the point where tax payments on our debt are at an annual run. I mean, excuse me, income, uh, the, the interest payments on our debt is already at a run rate of $1 trillion annually. Just the interest payment on the debt. Now, if you figure we're taking just over $4 trillion 
of, of income or, or of revenue from tax revenues. That's, that's like 25% of, of our, our revenue. That, that's just insane. And that's where we're at right now. And so to go back to your, your first statement of, it always seems like, you know, we, we, we talk about, we talk, we've been talking about ad nauseum and we have, but, and I'm not saying this time is different. I'm just saying that this cycle is showing how it, each cycle it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so now we're running debt to GDP of 130%. We're running deficits of, of, you know, about $2 trillion. Our interest payments on our debt is a trillion dollars. Our debt to GDP is 130%. I mean, this is, these are problems that are not going away and they're only uh, growing exponentially unless we do something and change it. So what do you think the forcing function ultimately is? Is there some percentage of the, you know, of tax receipts or something like that, where it's like, whoa, hey, you know, right now it's 25%. The run rate of what we have to pay in terms of interest is, you know, 25% of what the, the U.S. government spends in the course of a year. If we get to 30 or 40 or 50%, you know, are we going to wake up and say, hey, this is, this is just ultimately way too much? Or is it if there's some sort of reacceleration in inflation and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I hate to do this. Think, no, it's a good, it's a, it's a good question. It's a good yeah. question. And the way I look at it is, look, we're in a debt spiral. That's the, that's the premise. We are in it. We are in it. We can't get out of it. So there, we, it, when you're, when you're running deficit like this and you're, and you're having to, okay. So you, you're running such large deficits. What are your choices at a, as a government? Your choices are either austerity, which is cutting expenses. Well, that's political suicide. Each party is trying to get the trick the other one into doing something like that because it it, it loses the 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 confidence of their of their uh, constituents, right? So they they lose votes. So neither party is really going to do it. You hear both parties chirp about it every single election cycle, spending, 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 but nobody nobody fixes it. the de- The debt ceiling raise is raised every couple of years. It doesn't matter the the party spending keeps going on. So that's not going to happen. The second thing you do is you could raise taxes. Now we hear about this all the time. Like here we go into another election cycle. Let's just raise taxes, tax the rich, tax companies, tax these corporations that are making so much money. But the reality is when you do that, you, you wind up disincentivizing in, investment into those companies. You disincentivize, you know, uh, research and development and you disable the, the ability for companies to expand on their product lines, to expand into new products, to hire more people, to pay people, to pay more money. And you, you wind up decreasing their margins. So at the end of the, uh, at the end of the cycle, even when you raise taxes and you get, you're getting a larger share of the revenue in the revenue smaller. So you end up getting to the same place. It doesn't work. So that's the second thing. That doesn't work. The third thing you can do is just issue more debt. That covers the, the deficits every single year. You pay down, you, you have to, when, when debt matures in this country, we don't have the money to pay back what we borrowed. So we have to issue more debt in order to have the money to pay, to, to pay the principal back on that debt. And we hope that Whoever we're paying that back, that investor turns around and reinvests it in the new debt. That's what we're hoping. And it's been working more or less, but we're, we're, the engine is grinding and grinding and grinding. 
So we're getting to the point now, Mike, where that, that gap is just, it's just growing and growing and growing, right? So the issue, and that's why you're seeing the debt grow and grow and grow. $2.4 trillion of debt we've issued in five months. It's just insanity. Okay. So the other option. So you, you, you can default on your debt. You can, you can default. You can declare that there you're only going to pay 50% of what, uh, what you owe on the debt. And we've seen this happen in different countries and, and, uh, and different, uh, uh, areas of the, the world that have gotten into this debt spiral problem thing, you know, places like Greece and what, but what happened? Why would you, if you're a country that issues debt in a currency, in the same currency that you can print, why, why would you do that? You wouldn't. You would just print more money and monetize your debt, which is what we did back in the, uh, back in the pandemic. We monetized over $5 trillion of debt. So you're not going to, you're not going to default, but you hit on it, Mike, just a minute ago. You, the, the last option and the option that we are obviously going to implement is a soft default. What's a soft default? A soft default is, is having high perpetual structural inflation forever. It's, and so, and that enables you to grow your GDP nominally, right? So your GDP nominally grows and those are on those fake dollars because now you have more dollars in the system. You printed money, you put in the system, now you have more money. And so you've got inflation of prices, but there's more money. So those, those dollars that you borrowed 10 years ago on that debt, now you're going to go pay that back, but you're using dollars that are cheaper. They're worth less because there's more of them out there, you know? So and that, and that's and that's the solution that we're that we're implementing. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On the Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of Blockworks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but Blockworks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. So, okay, I completely agree with that. That's also where I think we're going as well. I just don't see what other options we even have. No one talks about paying debt back. You know, I mean, these levels are, you know, all of the discussion around this is, can we even just maintain the, the current levels of servicing the debt that we have? And even that's like an open question, right? But no one's no one's out here pretending we can pay any of this back. So eventually we're going to need to find a more sustainable solution. And I agree the soft default, um, you know, also known as financial repression, whether inflation is a big component of it. Here's the way that I think about this. In When I hear inflation, I just think a reshuffling of wealth, right? That's what that is. It's just, you can't create or destroy wealth by creating or destroying dollars, right? All, all you're doing is changing the relative allocation of of wealth within a certain uh, within the population. If you if you include if you include assets and and illiquid assets as part of wealth, like houses, 
like uh, fine art, you know? Absolutely. Right. So here's the question, who wins or loses in that? And this is where I feel like I get so many different answers when I ask this question, because immediately what everyone says is the poor, you know, it's a, it's a, inflation is a very regressive tax because it taxes the poor um, or, or the lower income people uh, disproportionately. But actually, if you look at wage data from the last couple of years of inflation, the group that did the best actually was uh, the lowest income earners in real terms. So, and that actually doesn't really square. The person who I think has given me the best explanation of this over the years is Lynn Alden, who the who benefits is uh, the opposite of uh, basically people that do not own debt, right? If you are a creditor, you are the one who is getting debased here, right? Because you are owed a nominal amount for in fixed income for whatever that debt is. Um, so if you, if inflation keeps churning, right, you're going to wake up and that nominal amount that you were supposed to get is going to be worth much less. Conversely, the people that benefit are actually the borrowers, right? So if you have a mortgage that's worth, um, you know, say a million dollars, and that's quite a bit, uh, today, you know, you run inflation 10% a year in, in 10 years, that's not going to be nearly quite so much in terms of nominal, nominal amount, because the amount that you owe is still a million, but theoretically your income would have grown quite a bit. So I always, it always puts my brain in a little bit of a pretzel and I sort of have a problem yeah, with this and I'll popular narrative. Yeah. And I, and I, and I love Lynn's explanation. She is absolutely brilliant. Uh, you know, actually um, she, she got me one of her books at, uh, at the last conference I was at with her. Um, and, uh, she's awesome. And that's a great explanation. I want to take it one step further. The people who lose are also the, the, the ones who are, who their their wages, their real wages are not really keeping up. And so who is that? And it's the it's it's the the ones who don't have any assets and they don't have any any debt. So they're not they're not benefiting from those paying back cheaper dollars. But also they're being hurt by this this uh hidden inflation that you can't, you cannot tell me that the price of goods and services over the last couple of years are only up 12% or something, you know, not even. So there's, there, the CPI numbers are, they're absolutely being manipulated for a good purpose. If you're in the, if you're at the Fed and the Treasury, the, the, so the issue is, are those, are those metrics true? Are, are the, are the low wage earners really keeping up? Are they, are those real wages really keeping up with, with inflation? Because if you look at, if, if you ask anybody at the lower end of that echelon, then you're likely to get the answer that is no. And, and so, and the other thing is how many jobs do they have to work to keep up with that inflation? Right. So there's a, there, it, I, again, I think Lynn's answer is brilliant. It's in, and in, in the perfect world of how we're reporting things. And she would agree with this that, you know, that, that would be true, but we're not reporting things properly. And so that's part of the issue. But, but if you look at it from now, go back to what you were saying about the confidence in the dollar. Mm. So the issue is that 
Well, the Fed is, they're supposed to have uh, stable, they're supposed to make sure they oversee stable pricing, right? So they want to make sure that that we have stable pricing in the system. What does that mean? That we don't have inflation that runs out of control or deflation that runs out of control. You want stable pricing. And they want full employment. That's 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 supposedly their, their two mandates. In reality, why why do they need go to first principles? Why do we need stable prices? Because we need confidence in the dollar. Okay. Now who are they answering to? Well they're they're answering to the Treasury. Because the treasury needs a stable dollar. Why? Because they need confidence in dollar. Why? Because they need to keep borrowing. They need to keep issuing debt. They need to be sure that they have that avenue to facilitate all the spending that's going on in Washington. So that's the way it's flowing down. And so that's why CPI, PC number, like these numbers, they're, they are, they're super attentive to the, the, you know, the volatility of these numbers and the sensitivity of them because they want to be sure that there's confidence. We need to maintain confidence in the U.S. dollar. And that goes back to your to your initial first statement of when does this happen? What happens when people lose confidence in the dollar? Where real inflation, true inflation is so high that people don't want to hold dollars anymore. That's when it happens. And when that is, I don't know. It's not going to be next year. It's not going to be in five years, but could it be in a decade? Could it be in a couple of decades? It could mm. because of the exponential rise in borrowing and debt. One more question about just the wages, because this, again, also puts my brain in a little bit of a pretzel just to, to put my hand up. But that doesn't really pass. You know, when people say, the, I understand that there's a real component to people's wages, but it doesn't actually pass my sniff test of that wages don't keep up with inflation. I feel like if anything, actually the lower income to even middle income people sort of come out on top of this because I feel like what ends up happening and, and the Delta, because one person, again, one when price is going up, someone's income is going up, right? Like one person's cost is another person's income. That's just how money circulates to the economy. And I think the Delta in between people's wages and, uh, and inflation is profit margins for businesses, right? Like if a, if a business can sort of protect its profit margins and continue to charge more while not paying its workers quite as much, that's how you get a delta in between prices and costs and the wages of individual people. But I think what, you know, just having read quite a bit about the inflation of the 70s and 80s and what you're already starting to see now with the, you know, this renewed strength of unions and the union auto worker strike and things like that, mm-hmm. is that's what comes after, right? Inflation kicks up. Everyone feels the pain. Everyone sees record record corporate profits and earnings. This popular swell ends up happening. And then there's an enormous amount of pressure that gets put on uh, profit margins for companies, which we haven't actually seen yet. Corporates in the US have been really good at defending those profit margins. But I feel like that's the next thing that ultimately ends up getting squeezed. And I do think there are even like two types of companies, right? And there is like very high duration companies, which they don't make a whole lot of profit. (laughs) And then there are companies that make a lot of profit now. So again, I just think that there's a lot of nuance here in terms of how this reshuffling ends up happening. Probably hard assets end up doing quite well. Bitcoin, real estate, things like that. Different corners of the stock market will do a better job of preserving wealth than than other corners of the stock market. So there'll be a reshuffling there. And then bondholders just get crushed. Is, is, is sort of how I see it as in that's general. Not, yeah. And, and in general, at the end, that's, that's a good, that's a, I think that's a solid viewpoint. However, let's, let's move back a couple of steps. Uh, number one, 
the the delta for someone who has uh okay so quality of life right so you so if you can pay for your food and energy and you know your housing okay then you then you're then you can survive and you can have a, a somewhat comfortable quality of life however when prices rise so much and you're at the low end of that earnings curve and every all asset prices rise well that the, 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 the multiplier effect on those larger things. So anything that's not a necessity ends up being out of your reach. So your quality of life is likely to diminish. So because you're, you're not going to be able to keep up on that, though, any of the larger purchases, you know, you need a new washing machine, you need a new, you want that new, uh, TV, not that that's necessary, but maybe it, maybe that would raise your quality of life, or maybe you want an, a, a better bed. You know, that would raise your quality of life. But have you seen the prices of beds? So you know, like the things like it. It just, I just don't think you keep. They're they're keeping up in in that sense. Number one, number two, when you have these cycles, and this is the problem. This is what maddens me. Is that when you have the manipulation of money and you, and you're going in these cycles, you continuously go in these, you know, ebbs and flows of the economy. And then you get into one of these downturns. Well, who gets hurt? Who gets hurt the most in that downturn? Who loses their job? Right. You're going to have, you're going to have a, a little bit of a barbell, but typically, you know, you're having a swath of, of wage earners that are not critical to the, to a company that get laid off. And so all those layoffs and that recession winds up just doling out economic pain across the board. And so at the end, we've been, we've been conditioned now to the Fed and the Treasury coming in and dumping liquidity into the markets. Why? Because they need the, they need markets to operate, to function properly. Why? Because they need treasuries, the treasury market to operate properly. Why? Because they must be able to issue more debt. So we've been conditioned that they're going to make sure that large companies don't fail, that large banks don't fail, that the market doesn't melt down, that the treasury market stays liquid. And they, they, if they have to dump liquidity in there to ensure that, then they will. And who makes off from that? Well, just like you just said, it's the Cantillon effect, right? Or the Cantillon effect, if you're French. Where you, where you, you know, the one who's closest to the spigot, the, 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 the one, they're, the ones who are closest to that liquidity spigot are the ones who benefit the most. And so asset owners, people who own large houses, who own gold, who own Bitcoin, like you're, they're, they're going to benefit in this in this cycle, in my opinion. I think I agree with, with most of that. The, the one data point though, that I, that I sort of think about is if this were true, right. And, um, I get into this debate a lot with, with Mark, uh, Yusko, who's my, my co-host on the roundups of this show. But if that were true and this whole system ran based on this, uh, sort of, you know, the Cantillon effect and, um, then you would expect wealthy people to actually want this inflation. And I actually don't get that sense. I, I think actually the, the other dynamic that's underlying this and something that I've, I've sort of had as a, a base framework uh, through which I view a lot of this is this sort of shift uh, or like this push-pull in between labor and capital. And I think actually for the last 40 or so years since the post-Reagan-Thatcher era, 
just capital has been thrashing labor. I mean, just put it in a body bag. The unions have been defanged. Uh, you know, all the asset owner has done, the asset owners have done extremely well. And I actually see, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is I, I sort of see a reversal of that in this, in this run up of inflation. I think the, the bargaining hand moves back to labor a little bit. Um, and there's kind of a reshuffling in favor of that. But, but I think where you and I are in 100% agreement here is, uh, what Bitcoin does. And I, just because I'm assuming many folks listening to the show will be very familiar with sort of the argument where the Fed has to come in, backstop more and more of the market. You can't print something like Bitcoin, so Bitcoin's value goes up. I think to, to maybe update, I guess you and, and listeners, because I haven't talked about Bitcoin an enormous amount or my sort of changing views on it. I want to, like Lynn has this great, I don't know, we're just referenced, this is a Lynn appreciation episode here now. But, um, you know, this this kind of like, I'm so bearish, I'm bullish. Um you know, where basically like, I think the system is so broken that actually assets have to do well in kind of the mid to long term because the Fed's going to have to come in and backstop everything. I started to feel recently, and I would love to get your thoughts on this. I might be in almost, I think I'm in that camp for now, but I think eventually that transitions to, I'm actually so bullish, I'm bearish. And what I mean about that is like, I've been so positive about Bitcoin for so long. It's still the thing that I own the most of. Like, I'm just a massive supporter of it. I've just seen and bought into the vision now for such a long time that I'm actually starting to worry in recent years, there's been so much money printing and the system is so obviously broken and that's going to come to a head. And that's going to be at the very center of what policymakers are going to have to do. Now that's so bullish for Bitcoin. I guess where I'm starting to maybe get a little concerned is if this all comes to a head and you know, Bitcoin obviously does very well price-wise, I start to get more worried about people banning it. You know, I, it's, it's hard for me to, it's easier for me to see a world right, where when everything's breaking and there's runaway inflation and the financial oppression has moved into the mainstream and Bitcoin just does very well, where policymakers are like, hey, uh, we don't want people to have this, this ability to opt out. So what, what do you think about, about that idea? There's a lot to unpack there. Um, so... Well, first of all, I do believe I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I believe I'm so bearish on the system that I'm bullish on Bitcoin. I'm, I'm hugely bullish on Bitcoin. I came to the, the party much later than, than most of you. Um, and I also come from that institutional investing world like Mark, uh, Mark, Mark does. However, uh, you know, and that's part of the issue is that the people who have benefited the most from this system are not apt to look at Bitcoin as something that helps them because they they don't need something else. Warren Buffett doesn't need or want anything else. Neither does Charlie Munger. Neither, neither does Jamie Dimon. Like they do not want this. Why? Because it is tremendously disruptive. Now, why doesn't somebody like Elizabeth Warren want it? Because she cannot control you with it. It is out of her, out of her purview of control. And that's a problem for her. So that goes back to your point of, okay, as this gains traction and as we see in the next three to six months, we have multiple Bitcoin spot ETFs approved, which enables many institutional investors, small offices, small family offices, and those who just have not been able to convince their investment committee that holding Bitcoin is something that is, that is not a reputational or, or a career risk. 
they just, they have not been able to get to it because they're, because of the internal controls on, on buying, on settling, on, on custodying, on pricing, on marking market on Bitcoin. They just have not been able to get there. And so when we do have those ETFs, it's not only going to, uh, enable certain family offices and institutions to be able to buy Bitcoin immediately. It's just like buying a stock. They can settle it with their prime broker. It's no big deal. Uh, they have a custodian already, but that's one step. The second step is that it's going to force a, a, an entire, an entire sector of, of investors that have been ignoring it. It's going to force them to look into it and understand it. And so having that understanding is really the next, next big step, which makes me tremendously bullish because there's no arguing that the, the fundamentals of, of Bitcoin, it, 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 it trumps even the, the, that digital gold narrative, which will be the first narrative. That's going to be the first narrative is I, I agree with, uh, Michael Saylor on this, that the, the first, um, use for, you know, use case for most investors is going to be digital gold. Then we move into the, uh-oh, we need to control this phase, right? So what's, what are the options? Can they ban it? It can't be banned. I mean, you see, you've seen what happened in China. They, they, I don't know if they pretended to ban it. It's difficult to understand what, what their policies are with, uh, with that regime. But China is still one of the biggest Bitcoin miners on the planet, if not the biggest, right? So, um, Actually, not to interrupt you there, but I, I was going down the rabbit hole and listening to some old Epicenter podcast from, you know, 2014 timeframe. And there was a really great, ep- there was an episode that I was listening to where it was 2014 and some guy from Coindesk and he introduces himself. You might have heard of us. We're this up and coming little brand at <laughs> Coindesk uh, in 2014. And he was going through what some of the big trends were at the time. Um, of, and this was, you know, just pre, you know, post Mt. Gox blowing up, you know, and what he said was the industry is too focused on price. How many times have you heard that? Right. People, this is the big criticism that everyone outside loves. Oh, you're so focused on price. Okay. So they were saying this all the way back in 2014. China just reversed a ban on Bitcoin and, uh, the U S government sold some Bitcoin, which was like federal acceptance of Bitcoin and they're rolling out some stuff and, and I was like, you could literally superimpose these conversations in 2014 <laughs> over the current day, nine years later. It's incredible. And it would not even be out of place. People wouldn't even question it. It's yeah, just it's incredible. so funny to me. But. It's, it's incredible. And then th- there you go. And so, you know, and so I think we get into the spot here where people are a little bit worried about, but once we get the ETFs and it's widely owned, they, they can't ban it. That's going to be, that would be, I just can't see them working against BlackRock and Fidelity and, you know, State Street and, and Texas teachers and, and CalPERS. And like, that would be, that would be such a monumental move. I, I, I can't, I can't get there. They could tax it significantly in a way or something, but I don't, it, these ETFs, once they get approved, that that's like a stamp of approval that I believe will, will, will put this into the mainstream and that's it. The cat's out of the bag. And then what, what, you know, the number go up technology is interesting, of course, because you're seeing this, this influx of capital into the space that's tremendous. And it's going to be, and that's going to be the, the digital gold narrative. But as that comes in, 
you're going to see this expansion on top of that on the, on the, on the next layers, on transaction layers, on, you know, uh, on, on the second and third layer of, of Bitcoin that enables I'm just a whole new array of technology and companies that are going to capitalize on that. And that's the, that's something that's super interesting. This goes beyond the miners. This goes into software solutions and hardware solutions and, you know, uh, and Bitcoin enabling the Bitcoin layer enabling things that we just, that we just can't do right now in a way that is more secure and, and, uh, doesn't, doesn't need the trust because it's trustless that, the uh that the other cryptocurrencies need because they're central you know they're they're centralized where the decentralized nature of of bitcoin enables uh, a growth in an industry that we would not have seen we're going to have we had the internet we're going to have ai and we're going to have the bitcoin industry and those are those are you know those are the two big developments i think that are coming down the pipe and it's going it's going to be interesting it's going to be exciting and, and that is exactly like you and I were talking about before the show. That's exactly why we started the, the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund, because we see tremendous opportunity. We're already seeing, we're talking to people and, um, and we're investing in companies that we're super, super excited about. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting industry. I think it's just going to develop exponentially from here. Yeah. I do got to poke at you because I, I do think some of the other uh, cryptos are decentralized. I would put uh, Ethereum and Solana actually in, not in the same camp of de- or same amount of decentralization as something like Bitcoin. But I think there are, there are projects out there that are, you know, Bitcoin is the oldest and it has had the longest time to decentralize. But um, so I got to poke at you there, defend some of my, my other interests here. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Tell, tell me about what's going on in the in the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. Like, what what are some of the the projects that you're sort of seeing in and, and interested in and investing and supporting? And then um, I, w- I want to hear a little bit about the uh, the informationists as well. Um, and maybe we can sort of close on that as, as what some of the stuff that you're writing about. Awesome. Yeah the uh, the uh, Bitcoin Opportunity Fund it, it is a, it is a hedge fund a hedge fund private equity. It's it's a it's a hybrid. Uh, it's it, it is for accredited investors. It's not my rule. It's the SEC's rule, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, but for those who are, are, are accredited, it, we, what we do is we invest in, uh, both public and private companies and, uh, and all in the Bitcoin space. And so we're, we're finding opportunities all over the place, whether it's, whether it's public or private, whether it's early stage or late stage, uh, large companies, small companies, uh, we've bought, We've bought uh, straight equity. We've bought um, some um, preferred equity. We've bought debt with preferred. We've bought uh, just private, um, straight private shares. So um, we can operate anywhere in the capital structure and across the world, but it's in the Bitcoin space. And so uh, any opportunity that we're seeing. And so what's unique about what we're doing is we're not like a venture capital fund who has to find those early stage companies. And we're not like a public uh, hedge fund and focused on basically just the miners. We're finding opportunity all over the place. And so uh, we're super excited. We, we, we've got some great investments that if, if people are interested, they can, they can go to bitcoinopportunity.fund. And we've got a webinar that we talked about all the investments we made and, uh, and some of the stuff we're super excited about. I can't say too much about it because, you know, um, SEC rules, but that's, uh, it's, uh, it's a super exciting space to us. 
Awesome. Well, guys, I highly recommend you you check that out. And then, uh, James, in our, our closing minutes here, you've been super generous with your your time. But uh, talk to folks a little bit about the newsletter that you write, the the Informationist. Oh yeah. So I write a newsletter every single week. It's called the Informationist, and what it does is I, I take one complicated concept, a uh, financial topic that's probably top of mind. Uh, people are thinking about things like the debt spiral or the, uh, the, the treasury auction, uh, the reverse repo, like stuff like that. And I just boil it down super simply into a, like a five or seven minute uh, read and, uh, and anybody can understand it. We've got doctors, lawyers, engineers, uh, dancers, uh, firefighters. And we, it, we've, there, there's uh, almost 25,000 subscribers now uh, in just over a year. So it's been great. I love it. It's a great community and it's free. So you can just go to jameslavish.com and and sign up for the free newsletter there. Well, I appreciate the time, uh, guys. I highly recommend that you check out uh, The Informationist and the work that James is doing at the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. Uh, James, this was a ton of fun. We'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you for having me. Cheers. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning into that great interview with Michael. Just as a reminder, I know I've mentioned it a couple times throughout this interview, but Michael is going to be with us in person at our institutional digital assets conference, DAS London. That is March 18th through the 20th in London. Michael is going to be joining us talking about liquidity, inflation, monetary hedges like gold and Bitcoin. There are going to be many of uh, the on the margin interviewees from the past and a lot of the big institutions, the Black Rocks, the Goldmans, uh, et cetera. So if you're into digital assets and if you're into the type of content that we just covered today, I highly recommend that you go. There is a code margin20, which is going to get you a 20% discount on tickets because you're such a loyal listener. And I appreciate you and just genuinely want to see you in person in London. So thanks very much. Hopefully see you in London, March 18th through the 20th. And again, use code margin20. 